You're listening to Martin Wolf's podcast from the Financial Times. Last January, I noted the optimistic view of prospects for the world economy. In my column, Globalization's Future is the Big Long-Term Question, of January the 9th. But I also stressed two contrasts. The first was between this optimism and the risks being created by the excess of savings over investment in big parts of the world economy. And the second was between the economic optimism and pessimism about political prospects. In another column, A Divided World of Economic Success and Political Turmoil, published on January the 31st. We now know that the economic risks were indeed significant. We also know that the economics converged on the politics, not the other way around. But last year also created a new contradiction between pessimism about short-term prospects for the high-income countries, particularly the US, and cheerfulness about the outlook for the developing world. So will we see convergence on the worst of the two trends in 2008 once again, or will the dynamism of the developing countries keep the world economy expanding quickly? That there was a link between the savings glut and the financial fragility was evident. The former, I argued, generated the global imbalances and the monetary policy that drove household borrowing in the US to the level required to absorb the capital inflow. Soaring house prices and rising household indebtedness were the vehicles through which policy worked. As Carmen Reinhardt of the University of Maryland and Kenneth Rogoff of Harvard note in a brilliant new paper, this had some similarities to the recycling of petrodollars to developing countries that preceded the debt crisis of the 1980s. This time, surplus savings were, in their words, recycled to a developing country that exists within the U.S., the subprime borrowers. The consequences for banks also look disturbingly similar. I miss the details of the link between subprime loans, securitization, special investment vehicles, and a meltdown in money markets. But I did note that the underpricing of risk and the combination of low interest rates with fast growth almost invite economic blunders. My mistake was to underestimate the ability of the world's premier financial institutions to sink themselves in a quagmire. But I was in good company. Theirs. The question that matters is whether the US will experience a lengthy period of weak growth in private demand. The chances that it will are high. This is the conclusion I draw from the paper by Professors Reinhardt and Rogoff. They argue that the mess the US has fallen into is similar to the more severe financial crises suffered in the past by other high-income countries. Yet the remarkable fact about this turmoil is that emerging economies are emerging as safe havens. Growth there is being sustained, and credit spreads have moved little. The apparent invulnerability of emerging economies to the U.S. slowdown is noteworthy. It is duly noted in the World Bank's latest global economic prospects. For this, the prospects report indicates three explanations. First, the high-income countries as a whole grew at an estimated rate of about 2.6% last year, partly because of the buoyancy of the Eurozone. Second, the momentum of emerging economies and above all of the giants, is formidable, with the expansion of the Chinese economy estimated at 11.3% and of India at 9%. Third, 
economic integration continues apace, with world trade growing 9.2% in 2007. It is astonishing how widespread rapid economic growth has become in the developing world. In 2007, for example, growth is estimated by the World Bank to run at 10% in East Asia and the Pacific, 8.4% in South Asia, 6.7% in Eastern Europe and Central Asia, 6.1% in Sub-Saharan Africa, 5.1% in Latin America, and 4.9% in the Middle East and North Africa. The soaring prices of oil and other commodities make this picture of broadly shared growth yet more noteworthy. These have had remarkably little impact on global growth. It is far more plausible to view them as a consequence of that growth than as a constraint upon its continuation. Moreover, soaring commodity prices have also had remarkably little impact on inflation. The World Bank notes, for example, that consumer price inflation averaged a mere 1.7% in 2007 in the group of seven leading high-income countries, even though non-oil commodity prices jumped 15%, measured in the admittedly tumbling dollar. The bank forecasts inflation at the same rate this year. Successful control over inflation, and still more over inflationary expectations, has given central banks at least some room to respond to falling house prices and the credit market mayhem. So what happens next? More of the same seems to be the expectation. Weak growth in the U.S., quite possibly a recession, and in many other high-income countries, but buoyant expansion elsewhere. Thus the bank forecast growth in the high-income countries at just 2.2% this year, but developing economies expected to expand by 7.1% on average, with 10.8% in China, 9.7% in East Asia, 8.4% in India, and 7.9% in South Asia. This, then, would be a brave new world indeed, in which emerging countries would pull high-income countries behind them. I suspect the outcome will not be as benign as that. Nevertheless, the growth process in the large emerging economies is indeed sufficiently autonomous, and the freedom of manoeuvre of their governments sufficiently large to make this view reasonable. If China's export growth slowed, for example, it would be quite simple for the Chinese government to expand domestic spending, it is no longer a question of capacity. It is far more one of will. For the global economy, current financial troubles may not prove decisive. But there is a crucial caveat. How much worse might the politics get? The past year has seen no noteworthy deterioration. After the US presidential election, the world might even witness substantial improvements in many areas but the health of the global economy demands the survival of a peaceful, cooperative and open world. Yet friction seems likely to grow over access to markets and raw materials, particularly energy. Whether the present financial crisis proves a blip or the end of an era depends, above all, on whether openness survives the slowdown. That is the big challenge. Thank you for listening. To read Martin Wolf's columns online, please go to www.ft.com forward slash wolf.